Hello and welcome to School of Batman. We ask scientists and researchers to use their expertise to help Batman in his quest against crime. I'm your host, Chris Blumson, amateur scientist and professional Batman enthusiast. In today's episode, we'll be discussing the case of Bruce's language jailbreak. The fearsome sun awakens Bruce in the outdoor cell he finds himself in. His pilgrimage around the world to find something came to an unexpected stop less than a month ago, just after landing on the coast of East Africa. He was arrested for a reason he has been unable to determine and was imprisoned on this unnamed island. He needs to understand why and how he can get out of here to continue his journey to becoming the Batman. His talkative and friendly cellmate seems keen to help, but the language barrier makes it impossible. Or does it? This week we're joined by Dr. Hannah Gibson. Hannah has a PhD in linguistics from SOAS University of London and is currently a lecturer in the Department of Language and Linguistics at the University of Essex. So hello Hannah, how are you and thank you for joining us. Hi Chris, yeah I'm fine, thank you. Yeah, nice to be here. Wonderful, wonderful. So uh, let's talk a little bit about your um, journey to kind of how you got to where you are today um, and a little bit about what linguistics is uh, before we dig into the story and how your expertise can help Batman. So um, tell us a little bit about how you got interested in linguistics, what was your path to where you are today um, and what kind of things you currently look at in your work. Absolutely, so I've taken a bit of a, a sort of winding route to linguistics, it has to be, has to be said. Um, I've always been interested in languages. So I remember as a child, I had friends who spoke other languages when I was growing up and I was always trying to learn little bits of different languages. So language has been, yeah, real sort of presence or interest in language has been a real presence throughout my life. When I went to university, I started on a law degree and thought that I wanted to go into practice uh, law, partly because people had said, oh, well, you know, if you study Spanish, lots of people speak Spanish, you know, if you study another language, where's that going to, where's that really going to get you? Um, and so I sort of took their advice um, and thought, oh, I should study something that I'll get a, a, a job, a career out of. And yeah, I actually went to SOAS, the School of Oriental and African Studies in London to study law. And when I got there, I had this handbook um, of all the courses you could do. And I think when I started, there were 43 different languages you could study from all around the world. So the emphasis on studies at SOAS is Africa and Asia. So there were lots of languages that I hadn't had a chance to study before. Um, and I thought, I can't be here and not study a language. Um, so I actually started studying Swahili, um, so a language from East Africa. Um, and basically throughout my studies got more and more interested in language and ultimately linguistics. Um, and I thought law was interesting, but basically I managed to find my way back to my real passion, which was language um, and linguistics. And you got an excellent career out of it as well. Um, it's sort of looking back, it sort of feels like all the signs were pointing in this direction, but I was obviously a bit reluctant al along the way. Um, but yeah, I just thought I'm really interested in languages, but I'm actually also interested in language. So just human language, which is what linguistics is the study of. So rather than a particular language, just how language works. So that was my first question, really, was what is the difference between languages and linguistics? Or is there one or is it quite subtle or? So linguistics is the study of language um, and really the study of human language. So the idea is that 
humans have a capacity for language that is unique, essentially. So there are other species that communicate, um, but actually language, that, the types of things that we can do with languages as humans is unique. So linguistics is studying essentially the, what we would say is the human faculty for language, the human ability or capacity for language in general. And then one of the ways to do that might be to look at individual languages. So, you know, studying certain languages or looking at the differences between individual languages. But yeah, the kind of study, the scientific study of language as a whole is what makes up linguistics. Right. So I like to ask quite vague questions about these kind of things. I always find the answers interesting. So what, what is a language? Ooh, that is a very good question. Um, a language is a system for communicating. Some people think actually it's not even just communication, it's specifically interaction. And you see that that's modeled in other things as well, which are not language. Um, but yeah, language is a system for communicating, which has a set of, I don't know, principles or rules which enable us to communicate with other people who have access to the same system, essentially. You said something interesting there. What's the difference between communication and interaction? Yeah, that, that's a, it's a good question. The reason I sort of brought that in is that people talk about all sorts of other ways in which we interact as humans which aren't through language. So I um, don't know if you know this sort of stuff about like embodied performance and things. So like even dancing, for example, with a partner, it's a form of communicating, but we wouldn't say it's language, right? Um, or even in a, a, a band, right? Maybe like a kind of jazz band or something where you're improvising and you're kind of riffing off each other, that is a form of interaction. Whether you're communicating, like you're not necessarily giving someone else another message unless it's, I've finished or it's now your turn. Yeah, it's a good question, but sort of subtle difference. But yeah, interacting, we can interact while doing things that aren't explicitly communicating a, a message, I suppose. Yes, I suppose you could convey various emotions through taking that band example, you could convey uh, excitement or anger or something like that but to get more subtle that's where it breaks down the, the the communication versus interaction divide I suppose you couldn't say there is a monkey over there absolutely and that's one of the other things just to link back to what I was saying before about human language so one of the ideas is that in human language we can do things in the abstract so we can talk about next week we can talk about yesterday, we can talk about hypothetical things. Um, whereas other species that communicate, for example, um, you know, bees might be able to say, oh, there's a great batch of flowers over there, but they can't say, oh, six years ago, I came down this very road and I found a fantastic batch of flowers that, you know, I got lots of pollen for. Like they can only do things kind of in the immediate. So when you refer to human's unique capacity, is it that kind of abstraction which you're specifically referring to or are there other elements as well that you would define as unique? Yeah so that's so that's one of the ones that's kind of um, cited quite widely so this kind of abstract. Um, there are other properties some of which are a bit more controversial that are supposed to be um, unique or specific to, to, to human language. Um, so the ability to kind of embed one idea within another within another um, a bit of a detour, it's a bit off my kind of area of expertise, but I think the idea is that there's a few, yeah, set things which stand, set human language apart. Um, and, and basically that we can hear a sentence that we've never heard before and make sense of it, essentially. So we're not just learning things off by heart. Whereas, I don't know if you're a, I don't know, chimpanzee or something and you have X number of calls, then presumably they can only mean 
that thing. Um, you sort of learn them off by heart. But yeah. Great. Okay, so let's dig into a little bit about the story now and how we can start to break down some of the ideas in it and how we can help. Um, so we've got a native English speaker, uh, which is Bruce Wayne, uh, and he's been imprisoned on this island. Uh, he's got a very talkative cellmate, but doesn't speak the language, and there's no, there's no uh, connection between the two languages uh, from an understanding perspective. So how would you start to tackle that problem if you were, I mean, for all intents and purposes, he's... Uh, he's interacting with a language where he has no um there's th there's no idea he can't you can't say well that is a cat or or whatever how how would you start to break that down how would you start to um be able to understand what the other person might be saying yeah i think some of the starting points are exactly actually how for example children learn languages or we learn languages when we're learning new languages so you might just isolate individual words and again, the ones that are easier are things that you can see, right? So say this, you know, talkative cellmate keeps on pointing at, you know, a chair. Um, you eventually sort of think like, okay, that's probably the word you know, for chair. Um, keeps on sort of saying the same thing each time when they're, I don't know, are they fed in their cell? You know, they're brought food. They say the same thing at the same time. You can start making connections to things that are in the real world. And that's the kind of easiest thing to do so that might be a way to start and then there are things that are a bit more abstract so as far as we know all languages make distinctions between verbs and nouns so nouns being like sort of things um, and verbs being like actions or events or doing things so you might then be able to start sort of noticing oh well you know, that's the word for chair and that's the word for you know, plate or rice or whatever but then my cellmate uses this other word alongside those and that word changes and you might start to think oh well that obviously describes an action or a yeah a doing thing or an event and you might start even if he they don't speak the same language but as an English speaker Bruce Wayne is thinking like oh well some of those parts are probably going to be objects and things and some of them are going to be the action and you could start building up a picture of how the sort of sentence is constructed like that. So which which languages are you uh, would you say you're an expert within um so because i'd like to get into some of these specifics here because i can i can understand the uh like you say like the pointing the chair the food um but getting to some of those more abstract ideas the leap to make those kind of ideas seems very difficult um and so i'd i'd love to hear about some specifics of something where we can talk about where maybe where there's differences as well um, to how English sentences are constructed uh, and how those differences maybe affect comprehension or um, affect uh, the kind of ideas that can be discussed. Absolutely. I mean, so I, I studied Swahili at university, so that was the language that I choose, chose when I decided I needed to do something as well as law. Um, and that's probably quite a good example. So Bruce Wayne finds himself in East Africa. Swahili is spoken as a lingua franca by something like 120 million people across East Africa. Um, and so there are similarities between Swahili and English. So one of the things that linguists might first look at in terms of structure is the order in which the words appear. So if you say in English, for example, um, uh, something like I'm drinking water, we put I first and then you have drinking 
Um, and then you have water. So what we would say is you have essentially the subject, which is the, the doer, the, the, the person who's doing the action. And then you have the verb. So that's our event, our doing thing. And then you have the object. So in this case, the water. I'm drinking water. The, the thing that the water is kind of exper being experienced is being drunk in this case. Um, and so one of the similarities between Swahili and English, for example, is that Swahili has the same order. So it's going to have the subject-y type thing first, the verb next, and then the object. So Bruce Wayne could initially sort of start, even if he doesn't know this about Swahili, would start being exposed to the same order of things as the one that would be familiar from English. Um, so that would be a sort of similarity, so that helps out. Um, and then there are differences, so that's also what makes language and linguistics really interesting, is the way in which languages are different. Um, so in Swahili, you don't have to say, in a sentence like that, you don't have to say I. You don't have to use the pronoun, you don't have to use the word for the subject explicitly, you don't have to say that out loud. Instead, Swahili uses a different system which is called agreement. English also has agreement, but it's very, very eroded. So in English, you have something I like, you like, but then he or she likes, and that's is the bit which shows you that this is agreeing with a he, she, it, or a singular they like type thing. So if you've ever studied a language like Spanish or French um, or Swahili, these are the things that you get yourself kind of um, thrown into and kind of tied up in knots about because you have to learn what seems like, in this case, six different forms for the verb, right? So in English you say, I like, you like, the like doesn't change except for the he, she, it one. Um, and in other languages it changes in each form. So that would be a difference between Swahili and English. So maybe Bruce Wayne starts hearing like, oh, well actually when he's talking about himself, he always uses, in the case of Swahili, it's ni. So you would say ni na kunwa, so I'm drinking, for example. You have this ni na, um, which also says it's present. So I am drinking at the moment. But when he's talking about someone else, if I'm talking about you, then I would say u na. So the form changes. So again, maybe over the you know the course of these days, you sort of start picking up. Oh, something when he's pointing at himself, he's saying ni, but when he's pointing at you know someone else, he's saying u, and you start realizing these little things obviously do something. These markers mean something, even if you're not quite sure at the beginning what they mean. So I'm really interested in the scope of areas of study of, of linguistics as well um, because you've talked about kind of understanding the um, constructions and things of like of, of existing languages um, languages that you can go and interact with and, and, and talk to speakers and, and things like that but I imagine there's all kinds of other things about stuff like how languages can change over time why they change what and especially with a kind of increasingly globalized world what happens to languages when different languages come in contact with each other um, and so I guess it'd be lovely if you could comment on either of those two things but what other areas do um, linguists kind of study for um, new research I guess that's the thing I'm, I'm super interested in yeah I mean actually linguistics is quite a young field if you compare it to some of the other kind of you know what you might call hard sciences which have been going on for well centuries um so a lot of linguistics research is really new and really very cutting edge um so the kind of massive changes in the field have happened within yeah i suppose the last sort of 
60, 70 years or so. But yeah, I can talk a little bit about language change and language contact. Um, so that's something that I'm interested in. So essentially what happens when people who speak different languages come in contact with each other, right? So this is exactly the situation we have here. So in the world, being monolingual is very unusual. So, right, I might be growing up as a monolingual English speaker in Sheffield, think that that's widespread. It's actually very unusual to be monolingual. So lots of people, most of the people in the world are able to speak to some extent other languages um, as well. So you have a city, I mean you can even see it in a city like London, but essentially even in London the, the country is still sort of dominated by English. But lots of parts of the world where you have several official languages. Um, so for example in, in Kenya for example you might have Swahili and English as official languages which mean that people learn one language in primary school or study in one language in primary school, a different language in secondary school. Um, on the streets if you go out um, and you're in West Africa and you're in I don't know Senegal for example you might have people who live in one area who speak yeah ten, uh, one of or several of ten different languages so if you go to the shop you use one language when you're in school, you use a different language, your relatives may speak different languages. And so one of the things that's interesting there is how does that change the languages if we have this idea of language as a set of rules and some kind of system. And things that we can observe much more easily are borrowing of new words, right? So um, if I now introduce you to a new food that you've never heard of before, I give you the word and then you suddenly say, okay, well, this is now the word for this and you integrate it very easily, essentially, into your language. So actually English has done this a lot, so lots of English words are you know, from other languages. Um, just because we were talking about Swahili for example, um, the English word safari comes from the Swahili. Swahili safari just means journey um, and in English it's taken this particular meaning, right, I suppose a journey where you go and see animals or something like that. So you can borrow a word and that probably means that you still carry on speaking English but you've taken an example of a word. One of the things I'm interested in is how languages influence each other in terms of structure. So we were talking earlier on about saying I drink water. Is it the case that if I spend enough time with speakers of other languages, I would eventually end up saying something like water I drink or I water drink. So the other possible word orders, um, would that happen? And there are cases in, in other languages in the world where you find that word order has also been changed as a result of contact with speakers of different languages and you have to have things like enough exposure so usually you have to have not just one or two people speaking the language but whole communities often living together widespread kind of communication with each other often over quite a long period of time and then also broader kind of sociolinguistic things so people choose to speak a new language or might want their kids to learn a new language because it gives them more opportunities. So maybe they think, oh, my children will be able to get a job if they learn this language or, you know, they'll have better prospects for the future. So there's also the kind of sociological, yeah, sociolinguistic circumstances have to be right as well. So coming from a, a monolingual speaker myself, and that's the kind of environment that I live in, this the idea of being in, in an environment where there's many different languages spoken is is very difficult to comprehend. But one of the things that I'm thinking as you, as you were talking it through is how do these languages, I mean, it, it may not even be the right question, but how do these languages stay distinct? How do they not meld into one big kind of Esperanto when you're 
speaking one language in like the shop and another in the pub and things like that. How does that work? Absolutely. So I suppose there are some things, just to focus on the sociolinguistic side of things, there are some things that are actually very similar, but you might still say they're separate languages. So there's a kind of political element. I don't know if you've heard this kind of quote that's bandied around, which is a uh, a language is a dialect with an army and a navy. If you have kind of political clout and you have a bit of force behind you or you have a government, you can say, oh, well, this is a separate language and this is how you write it. You have schools that set some kind of, this is how you spell, you know, as a child struggling to learn how to spell a word like because or something, right? I mean, this is the right way to spell it. This is the wrong way to spell it. So people get very, this is tied up with things like nation building and things like that. But also identity. So I say path because I grew up in Sheffield um, and that became how everyone around me spoke with a ah rather than if I'd grown up in the South, perhaps saying something like path and bath. Even when we're not aware of it or we think we're not aware of it, it becomes really important to either show that you're part of a group or that you're definitely not part of a group, right? Like you can use it both to show membership and, oh, I'm different from those people. So there's those kind of things. Um, and then there obviously is communication at the bottom of it. So if I started talking to you in English with our SVO, subject, verb, object, order, and I actually said, Tom hit Mary, but what I meant was that Mary was the one who was doing the hitting, you would have misunderstood. Because in English, it's really important that Tom, if I say it first, is the one doing the hitting and Mary is the one being hit. Like, if I start changing things at random, we misunderstand each other and the conversation breaks down. Um, so I'm also interested in ways in which languages don't change, right? I mean, we still need to be able to communicate with each other to a certain extent. So yeah, how, we, how these languages don't kind of just collapse and become one is structural, but also, yeah, social pressures. Like, these things are really important to people. So is there anything else apart from verbs and nouns that you've found as a as a as a common thing present in all languages? Um, so one of the topics that people discuss is something called recursion, um, and it's a bit controversial because some people think that there are languages in the world which don't have recursion. Um, but the idea is this thing that I mentioned earlier on, where you can sort of talk about embedding something. So something like the man that I saw last week walking down the road wearing a hat. Uh, walking with a stick very slowly like it, at a certain point it becomes sort of nonsensical but the idea is that you can continue to put things into a bigger and bigger structure and provide more and more information rather than just saying I saw a man the man was wearing a hat like what we might think of as sort of separate sentences um, and this is again considered to be by lots of people a kind of universal um, property or feature of languages and some people think that they found languages which don't allow you to do this but that's a kind of controversial yeah obviously some people think they have and some people think that they haven't so and then there are other broader things which are really widespread but we don't know enough about all of the world's languages to really say conclusively so there are something like 7,000 languages in the world maybe um, and lots of them are endangered so are you know, being lost and, and things, but we don't know conclusively to be able to say all languages have this feature, all languages or no languages have this feature because we still know only so much about the languages that are out there. Is there a definition of what an endangered language is? 
Um, so there are sort of definitions. So even the UN and, and UNESCO kind of have their ideas of this is what. So they talk about actually levels of endangerment. Um, so people often think about you need to have a certain number of speakers, but actually if you have a quite a high number of speakers, the language could still be quite endangered given the right pressures. So of course there are things like natural disasters, right? Like an earthquake or something, which really means that people speaking one language are no longer able to be in one community. Um, but people tend to think that, yes, you might say, okay, well, this language actually is no longer being passed on to the next generation. So within one generation, the language will be extinct. So that would be highly, you know, highly endangered. And you might sort of say, okay, well, this language is, is, is vital, like it's quite vibrant, it's continuing, but if these current situations continue, then maybe in two generations, right? Um, so maybe you have children learning it from their grandparents or speaking it at home, but as soon as they go to school, they no longer speak it, and maybe they wouldn't speak, teach it to their children. So the sort of uh, stages of endangerment, um, rather than just sort of saying this is endangered and this is not, perhaps. Do you find as well, this, this may not even be a linguistics question, but do you find that how the sentences are constructed and how language is constructed has any influence on, say, the the outlook of a particular group of people or the so I'm just trying to think of things like if you don't um if you're not focusing on I like if you're not focusing on yourself do you find those kind of communities are more community minded um or uh yeah just it's a bit difficult question to ask I'm not 100% sure what I'm trying to say but I'm trying to say do you ever find that the language influences people's views of the world and how they interact with others I think I think you do. I think again, it's a sort of um, a bit of a delicate question because in the past, of course, classifying people and classifying languages has been used to very like negative um, effects. But there are some examples where you can see it more clearly. So, colour is a really good example. So, languages have different amounts of words for colours. So there is a there is a, a system that Berlin and Kay study looked at this. And some languages have two words for colour. And if you look cross-linguistically in unrelated languages, different languages spoken in different parts of the world, if the languages have two words, they tend to mean something like dark and light or black and white, you know, something on that kind of sort of distinction. If a language has three words, it tends to be something like dark and light and red. So that, you know, and you can sort of look at the chart and it ramps up like that. So the next word that you're going to introduce is going to be something like red um, rather than black, white and uh, yellow or something, right? Um, and so I suppose what people say is, well, we're not, you wouldn't want to assume that people who have specific words for three colours can only see three colours in the world. But in your linguistic system, the only thing that is important is to be able to say these, you know, these are the lexical items, these are the actual words we have for um, three colours. Um, and a sort of a, a, an example from a language like English is that, you know, if you're learning English and you come from a language which has politeness, markers of politeness, you might think it's very odd not to be able to say you, you know, that, that you, there is only you, there's not a polite you and a for, informal you. Or similarly with some varieties of English, there's only you is both singular and plural. Again, it doesn't imply that if you're speaking English, you're not able to be polite, but it means you don't actually have a specific anymore, a specific dedicated word for polite you. 
so yeah there's a sort of there's a bit of a link but um it's probably not quite as straightforward as as some people might like to to think do you have any um common misconceptions about linguistics or even just languages as a whole that you've come across that you there are pet peeves that you would like to correct Yes. <laughs> so one of the common misconceptions about linguistics is when I say I'm a linguist, the next question we all get is how many languages do you speak? So if you think that linguistics is the study of language rather than languages, then there's no reason I should speak any more than one language, right? So people conflate linguistics or being a linguist perhaps to being like an interpreter or a translator, right? Where you need recourse to a set of languages. Um, but I'm sure pretty much any linguist you would ask would have experienced that. Um, because I work on African languages, uh, one of the misconceptions that I am at pains to kind of address is that people also have ideas about some languages being simple or easy and other languages being more complicated. Um, and there are certainly certain features of languages which are more complex and others that are more simple, but if you take a language as a whole, I think they tend to kind of <laughs> level out. You mentioned earlier on Esperanto. I mean, the goal with Esperanto was to make a language that was learnable, you know, so that people could learn it with much less uh, effort and that people could communicate with it. Um, but I, I always give an example. So if people say, oh, Swahili, you know, African language, you know, presumably it's, you know, quite limited and, and, and simple. Um, so you might be familiar if you know a little bit about French or Spanish, for example, with having masculine and feminine nouns. So if you're learning one of those languages, you have to learn whether table is feminine or masculine, um, which for an English speaker is not, a, is not a sort of grammatical feature. So Swahili has 16 different genders, 16 different grammatical genders. So how, how it works in Swahili is that you have, so they're called genders, but because it's not just masculine, feminine, or masculine, feminine, neuter, they're, they're normally numbered, or that's how linguists would approach it. And so you have a set of, a, a gender or a set of classes which contains nouns which are human, for example. So uh, the word for person, the word for teacher, uh, the word for child, they go in a particular class. Um, and then you have a different class for uh, things that are like uh, natural phenomenon, you know, mountains, plants, trees, things like that. A different noun class for fruit or things that go in pairs or have a part-whole relation. And so on one hand, they're kind of, they seem to have a, a meaning, right? It seems that there's some kind of semantic basis. So if I say the word, for example, Swahili for bird is ndege. So if I have it in one class, bird is a living thing, it's alive, so it has a particular class. Um, but actually the Swahili for aeroplane is also ndege and the way that I show that I'm talking about an aeroplane but not about a bird is that my agreement, the rest of the sentence, will be different because it's in a different noun class. So it's not just the word but if you say my big red bird, the word for my, the word for big, the word for red has a different form from my big red aeroplane. Um, so you can imagine how that plays out, not just the nouns like table or bird, but the words for my, the words for numbers, and then the marking on the verb depends on the, the gender, the noun class of the, the thing in, in uh, itself. Um, so you have to learn that and then you can also kind of manipulate it for um, sometimes kind of comedic effects and things like that, which is also fun.
So that's it for today. Thanks to Hannah for joining us. Thank you, you're welcome. And thanks to Hannah's research, Batman can understand his cellmate, get out and continue his journey to becoming the Batman. You can find out more about Hannah's research on Twitter at It's the Gibson, and that will be in the description, or on our website at hannahgibson.net or at the University of Essex website itself. If you'd like to be a future guest on the podcast, please email us at info at figshare.com and you can find us on Twitter at School of Batman. Mm-hmm.